Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. If you are new here, welcome. If you've been here for a while, welcome back. I wanted to give you some information about what to expect for this episode. And if you're on my email list, you know that this is a conversation that I had been anticipating and thinking about having for a while, but also one that I was probably most nervous to put out into the world. And this is because as a professional, I strongly believe in autonomy and I believe there's so much pressure to lose weight. I don't want to contribute to further pressure. I don't want anyone to see I have a podcast about weight loss medications and believe that they really should be taking these medications or they really should be trying to shrink their body if that doesn't feel right to them. And at the same time, I think it's really important that each individual, we work to remove shame and pressure from any individual choice. And we trust people to make the choices that are best for them. So I continue, I talk a little bit about this with Dr. Egan once we get started, but I just continue to get a lot of questions and have a lot of nuanced conversations behind the scenes about these medications. And I believe that if it's something you're interested in learning about, you deserve to have information about it. And perhaps this, um, you know, maybe in the future, I, we don't go a ton into my opinions because a lot of it is when I'm talking to someone, it's weighing a lot of pros and cons for them um, before they make the decision. But if, if it's a topic of interest, we can always do future topics about it where I dive more into my thoughts about weight loss medications and um, just the things you want to be considering when you're, you're making that choice. But the other thing I want to be really transparent about is one of the reasons when I really got honest with myself, one of the reasons I was most nervous to have this episode is because there is a lot of judgment, and certainly on the internet, and just our brains are designed to judge, right? So in the professional space, there's a lot of judgment of, are you with us or against us? Are you in, you know whether it's the health at every size community or other communities within the health space that I've been a part of, bariatric surgery, obesity medicine, lifestyle medicine. Um, There's a lot of different camps and I won't say they never work well together, but I've been 
part of lots of areas where they don't work well together. There's not a lot of respect for people who find themselves in another camp. And while I identify and really align so much with so much of health at every size and intuitive eating, um, there's some things that I also believe for full autonomy need to be discussed openly. And um, so that being said, I was and I remain a little nervous, although I'm, I've reflected on it a lot and I feel good about having this episode, is that I never want any professional colleagues to judge or think less of me or not want to work with me because they see I have an episode about this. Um, and I believe that happens and I believe it will happen. And I, I am okay with that. But I'm putting this, I'm saying this to you because I strongly believe that our professional world would be better off if we can work to understand the other professional opinions out there, where people are coming from, and really listening to our patients, our clients. Um, that's why I'm having this episode is because I'm listening to what people are bringing to me and the questions they have and um, believing them of their experience in their body and, and with these meds. And so without further ado, um, we'll, we'll get, we'll dive into this episode. And I think the last thing I'll say about professionally, you know, if, if someone's working with professionals, just remembering that all of us have the same goals. We want to feel well in our bodies and we want to help our, our clients, our patients feel well and thrive in their bodies with optimal health. And, and that's going to look different for everyone. So, all right, so what to expect in this interview with Dr. Celia Egan? We're going to talk about some of the history of weight loss medication options and why I probably wouldn't have had an episode like this a um, handful of years ago. There have been a lot of changes in this field. Um, we're going to go into an overview of the weight loss medication options available, including a brief overview of some non um GLP-1 agonist medications. So we mostly talk about GLP-1 agonist medications during this conversation. Those are your Wagovi, Saxenda, um, Manjaro. But we also do a brief overview of Contrave and Orlistat um, and the occasional, well, the pros and cons of those briefly. And then we talk a little bit about the mechanism of action for GLP-1 agonist medications, um, how they work. And we're going to really, I would say it's a brief overview of the risk and benefit. Um, a lot from the medical perspective from Dr. Egan, um, I chime in a bit with some of the psychological pros and cons, risk and benefits that people might want to consider. I wouldn't consider this conversation a completely exhaustive every single pro and con because that would take forever um, and it's super individual. But I'm really excited um, for those of you who are seeking this information to bring it to you today. So without further ado, let's dive in. Remember the old diet advice like when the urge to eat strikes, just take a walk or have a glass of water. Usually you're just thirsty, not hungry. If you're anything like me, these suggestions make you want to punch the magazine or the person who said it in the face. So many suggestions to just stop emotional eating are based in diet culture. They're based in the notion that you know what to do, just do it. And I'm here to tell you that changing behavior is hard. We as humans are wired for comfort and disrupting a pattern of emotional eating is challenging. And 
at the same time, you absolutely can do it and you can learn to prefer it. However, to get started with disrupting this pattern, we need to feel understood. We need to then take small consistent actions in the direction of our goals. So we're gonna leave these super patronizing suggestions at home and get some actual suggestions for simple, fun things to do when the urge to eat strikes when you know you are not hungry. So for some actual suggestions for this, I have a new free actionable guide. This is a one page PDF you can pull up at any time with 23 things to do instead of eating, complete with links to videos, fun, inspiring songs, and many different ideas to disrupt the pattern and take a small step towards empowerment and towards that confident person that you deserve to be. So grab the guide absolutely free at drhondorp.com forward slash guide. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P forward slash guide to start ditching the shoulds and regaining confidence in yourself today. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for any form of professional advice. If you are struggling with how these specific topics fit for you, please make sure you seek out a professional to get that guidance. And if you are enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you could pull out your phone, go to Apple Podcasts, and give me a quick review. You can either just give us the star review or you can write a review there you can let me know what you're enjoying what you'd like to see more of it's a really simple way and a free way for you to let me know you're enjoying the podcast help more people find it and um, help keep the podcast going so thank you so much in advance all right let's dive in all right everyone so welcome to the motivation made easy podcast I, we're doing a very special episode for a number of reasons today. I have Dr. Celia Egan here in the podcast studio with me today. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome. And we're in, uh, I've done a couple in person, but it's always been in my basement. So this is (laughs) in person in the podcast studio at uh, the Ada Library. Yeah, beautiful library. So happy to be here. Pretty nice setup. So we're going to start by me telling you a little bit about Dr. Egan, and we're going to talk all things weight loss medications today. So um, it's uh, this is a topic that keeps coming up in my world, and as I'll talk about in a little bit, I had some like pros and cons of having this discussion, and I ultimately came to, I think it's a really important discussion. So Yeah, and I think for every patient, information is always powerful, right? And so we hope to just, I think, provide women and patients just information about what the um, drugs are available. Yeah, yeah, I love it. People can trust themselves to do with the information as they will. Yeah. So let's talk about you, Dr. Egan. So uh, Dr. Celia Egan joined True Women's Health here in Grand Rapids, Michigan over a year ago after practicing obesity medicine and internal medicine at Spectrum Health Medical Group. That's where she and I initially met. At True, she focuses on what she loves, including extensive patient care and medical weight management and providing evidence-based wellness expertise to women in a primary care setting. Born and raised in West Michigan, Dr. Egan completed her undergrad studies at the University of Michigan. After earning her MD from 
New York Medical College. She completed her internship and residency at, in internal medicine at Weill Cornell Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, New York. During her residency, she focused on outpatient weight management and obesity medicine with one of the field's leading experts. And then after residency, she worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which she gained extensive knowledge in advanced inpatient oncologic care and survivorship care, which I actually didn't know. So that was an interesting fact about you. Yeah, that was sort of the beginning of my uh, uh, big time doctor job. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that had to have been, I don't know. I actually am interested in how that has influenced your practice today. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, that I, I think one word to describe it was intense. I bet. Yeah. yeah. I did a little, a six-month oncology rotation inpatient at yeah. uh, Rush, and I learned a lot. Yeah. So, um, and then after completing academic hospital, hospitalist work at Loyola, Loyola, wow, I'm uh, really messing things up here, <laughs> Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, she joined Well Essence MD, focusing on medical weight management, BCA medicine, and wellness in primary care. When not engrossed in medicine, Dr. Egan loves spending her free time being active and traveling with her husband, a local physician, and three sons. They love exploring all of West Michigan, including new restaurants, learning to ski, and hanging out on the beach. Just like all of us fellow West Michiganders, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you just add, uh, let's see, breweries for me and yeah we got it covered (laughs) so um well awesome and I I don't always go over everyone's extensive bio but I think it's really important I think we're we have a we have a gift in having you here helping us learn about these topics so yeah thank you for being here so as I kind of alluded to earlier we're going to talk about weight loss medications today and initially I I sort of had some pros and cons about talking about any weight loss meds just because I take this sort of weight-inclusive, like, autonomy-granting approach, and so many people are told, you definitely need to lose weight, you have to lose weight, there's so Mm -hmm. much pressure. So I was, I think part of it was my own stuff. I was afraid of being called out and saying I'm pressuring people by talking about it, and I no longer believe that. I feel very confident that this is a topic that people deserve to hear, and if they don't want to hear about it, they can skip it. Yeah. Um, but it's an important one, and like every week, I still get I get more and more questions and people wanting to understand these meds and how they may or may not fit into their journey. Mm-hmm. So, um, and as we always talk about on this podcast, we're all about autonomous motivation, and autonomy is freedom of choice without excessive pressure. And so, yeah, we're just here to, like you said, provide information. Provide information, yeah. And I think we're actually in a really exciting time for obesity medicine. Because there are some new medications that have come out, you know, honestly, in the last 12 months that have really shown exciting results. And not just from a research standpoint, but I've also seen patients in the office and it talks a lot about just how they feel about food and what they're seeing with their bodies. And it's just a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rapidly changing and growing. So. Yeah, totally. Very cool. So, um, so yeah. We're we're going to dive in, and just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your story beyond what we said with your bio, yeah. how you got into this work? Yeah, so, you know, when I first um, left residency, I thought I'd do mostly inpatient care and maybe more palliative care, meaning kind of end-of-life hospital work, and honestly, that was, like I said, for lack of a better word, quite intense, mm-hmm. and it was just something that I was like, you know what, I I can't do this anymore, and I and and it didn't call to me, and I actually took a like a 180 and went more into more preventative care, outpatient 
work. And from there, I just kind of kept trying to answer the questions that patients had for me, right? So how do I prevent chronic disease? All right, we had to lose weight. All right, how do we lose weight? Okay, so I got board certified in obesity medicine. Um, you know, are there hormones involved? And so I've become a certified um, menopause practitioner, right? And so it's just really been this journey of answering questions for patients and really trying to give them the best answers possible for some of these avenues and really answer the majority of questions that people ask, which is, how do I help my hormones and, and sort of how do I lose weight and mm-hmm. <laughs> and really get a better relationship with food, which is I think is honestly for a lot of people more important than actually moving that number on the scale, mm-hmm. right? It's it's finding that good balance with eating, which I think is so important for so many people. Yeah. So um, yeah, during that time, that's where I've learned about all these different medicines and have used them in my practice when I thought appropriate. And mm-hmm. so I've had a couple years now of um, outpatient practice where I've used these medicines pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About how much, and you may or may not have a sense of this, but about how often are medications part of people's journeys, at least that you're currently working with? You know, I mean, I'm a bit biased just because I have people who've kind of tried more lifestyle stuff and mm-hmm. maybe haven't been as successful or as as successful as they've wanted to be. So they kind of will seek out um, my help. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say about 50%, 50 mm-hmm. to 60% of um, patients are seeking some sort of medication option. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. Like, it's the same with me, I have very a biased sample because they're probably seeking me out because my specialty is relationship with food, and um, so I have a smaller portion who have tried these medications at different points than you do. But that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So I, we're just gonna start off. We are gonna focus more so today on these newer medications, the GLP one agonist medications. But just to kind of lay the landscape. I want to know your kind of opinion about, I probably wouldn't have had a podcast like a couple of years ago about mm-hmm. weight loss medications because in yeah. my professional opinion, I didn't see them really helping that many people mm-hmm. that often. Yeah. So can we just do kind of a brief overview of some of the history of different weight loss medications yeah. that have been So, available? and please don't, don't quote me on the exact dates of these things, but mm-hmm. um, you know, in the 1990s, Fenfen was introduced, yeah. which is was a combo medication. And after, and we did see some good weight loss results with it. And mm-hmm. after a couple of years, it was pulled because of some heart issues and it was considered to be too dangerous, mm-hmm. which was really frustrating for the obesity medicine world, just because it kind of put a bad taste in everyone's mouth that, um, that these medicines weren't going to be helpful and kind of no hope, so to speak. And they're dangerous. That they're, that, that yeah. could be dangerous. Yeah. And we've relied a lot on bariatric surgery as sort of being the mainstay for people who really need to lose a drastic amount of weight. Mm-hmm. About 10, 15 years ago, though, we've started to come out with some other newer drugs. Kind of the first one that was out, um, or one that got a lot of play, like in the early 2000s, was Orlistat, which mm-hmm. basically blocked fat absorption in your GI tract. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's still available, although no one uses it, just because basically people get like, stinky toots and they like have fecal incontinence and (laughs) it's people would much rather just have extra weight than any of those things. And so it, again, wasn't really a great option for people. From there, we've moved on to a couple of medications that have really interplayed at the brain. And so they're working at the brain in particular to change more of our relationship with food versus just blocking either the absorption or mucking around with some of the, um, way that our foods process. And, and those 
for certain people can be really successful. Mm -hmm. So one drug in particular is called Contrave is the brand name. Mm -hmm. The two components are bupropion and naltrexone. And how they work together is they really decrease that like emotional eating piece, right? And so for my patients who really struggle with not so much being overly hungry, but um, really struggle with just stopping and maybe at one plate of food or they've already had dinner and they find themselves in the pantry or they get an emotional trigger, meaning they'll be like, every time I get bored or stressed or I have a fight with somebody or a kind of intense situation, I lean on food. I have found it to be really successful. I will, I will be it. It's much less than some of the other medicines that we've seen. And it's really a select group of people. If you look in the studies, the average weight loss was about 5%. But honestly, in some of my my patients, I've seen upwards of 15 to 20%, honestly, for the right person. Mm -hmm. So um, it is still one of my go-to medicines when I, I think that clinically it makes sense. You can't take it if you're struggling with kind of chronic pain and need to be on narcotics or chronic pain medication. Um, it's not a good choice if you have a history of seizures. Um, a lot of the side effects, people feel a little lightheaded and nauseous. And then there's, of course, other people have other things that come up. But for the most part, it's pretty well tolerated. Mm -hmm. um, some people may feel a little anxious with the bupropion piece. Mm -hmm. We also get bupropion to help people stop smoking or for depression. Um, so sometimes that can be a double whammy if, if people have um, those other things that are ongoing in their life. Yeah, it sounds like the main mechanism there is like it might interrupt some of that reward value of food. It 100% is. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of where it goes. And the naltrexone piece is actually an opioid blocker. So mm -hmm. naltrexone is what we give patients who've actually overdosed on narcotics. Mm -hmm. And what it's doing is it's blocking that basically reward satisfaction. Meaning if I'm like, I feel really down, I'm going to eat, you know, 10 chocolate chip cookies to feel better, I'm never going to get that like basically euphoria of eating all those cookies. And so then my brain is sort of like, oh, well, that wasn't that exciting. Maybe I won't eat cookies anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it really sort of helps retrain the brain a bit, of course, with other sort of um, like behavioral support. And of course, pulling back on all those other things, you know, as much as we can. Yeah. Interesting. And that's another one I told you before we started recording where kind of heard a little bit about contra I mean I've definitely heard about it but I just clinically for whatever reason yeah. hadn't seen it yeah really be that helpful but I also hadn't seen it used all that much for me yeah it's it's really like there's I can almost like I can hear someone's story and be like you're you should be on contrave okay. right and I can yeah. it's really much more of a, like a clinical decision piece okay yeah interesting yeah so the other medicine that came out about 15 years ago yeah is Qsimia. Okay. So Qsimia is another combo medication of fenteramine, which actually was the good part of fenfen, so the part that was safe, and then topiramate. So topiramate, we've been using, both these drugs we've been using a long time. They're both really old drugs. Um, topiramate is actually a seizure and migraine medication. And one of the things that they saw was that people were losing weight and really lost a lot of that sweetness sensation off their tongue. Mm -hmm. So in combination, these two drugs really can help patients lose weight. And they're working really closely at the hypothalamus, we think, to change the energy set point. So we're, you know, instead of your body being like, I want to be 200 pounds, um, it lowers that a little bit. So your body feels much more comfortable be, maybe being like 180 pounds, 190 pounds, right? So you can yeah. lose um, a, a chunk of weight. One of the downstream effects is that we do feel less hungry. We have a little bit more control over our food choices. Mm -hmm. For some for some patients, the tapiramate piece really just hits home. 
they re- it really helps control a lot of cravings and just calms that noise voice down a lot. Um, a little bit in the in the studies, a little bit more weight loss, seven to eight percent on average, so a little bit more than the contrave, um, and it's pretty well tolerated. You know, the phentermine part. Some people can feel a little jittery, mm-hmm. get some constipation, dry mouth. Um, the tapirmate comes with a lot more side effects, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So you definitely can't take it if you're thinking about having babies. It's and, and if you're pregnant, that's a, a big no-no. Um, you, if you have a history of kidney stones, it's not really pro- appropriate, and you can get kidney stones. And then some people talk about being mentally foggy a little bit as a common complaint. We see that much more at higher doses for weight loss. It's we use a much lower dose, um, but for some patients, it is a good choice, right? Particularly for those folks, I find. Um, when we don't see a lot of signs of insulin resistance as being a part of the reason why they're holding on to a lot of weight. Um, you know, if we're looking at, um, you know, fasting blood sugars and fasting insulin levels and all those things are normal, a lot of the times I'll, I'll throw Qsimia on top just to see if that's helpful. Or if people are talking about really having excessive hunger, that can be really helpful. Interesting. Um, that's, um, what I was going to ask about that in terms of, so for whatever reason, I've seen topiramate or topamax separately used, and I've seen adipex or fentir. Yeah. I always said it fentermine, but that one, I've seen those separately used, but my understanding was fentermine was not really a long-term option. Yeah. So that's been a bit debunked. So, okay. you know, for a while, because of all the sort of badness that came with fenfen, um, Everyone was sort of like, oh my gosh, three months max, that's all we can do. Um, but both the position statements from the obesity, the obesity Society and the Obesity Medical Association, there's no reason to suspect that there would be any long-term detrimental effects. I mean, there's some people who um, Qsimia or fentermine works, and even at a low dose. So a lot of the times, you know, in the 1990s, we were giving fentermine at really higher doses, mm-hmm. um, and people were really feeling jittery and not feeling well. We really give people, oh my gosh, almost like a, like 10% of those higher doses, and it's just enough just to kind of get their brain in a position where it feels comfortable sort of losing weight. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And is that one that people tend to need to stay on if they want to see that weight loss stay? They they do. I mean, a lot of the times, I mean, it's so hard to say because particularly when we're dealing with like high cravings, I mean, there's so much opportunity for lifestyle changes and behavioral modifications and kind of really exploring yourself and understanding the brain pathways that go with making a bad food choice. And so I, I can't say that if people did some of that work and were, you know, finding other reward pathways, like, you know, bumping up their exercise and pulling back on, um, you know, extra processed food or whatever they needed to do. And they were finding a good balance that if we took them off that they would fall back into those old habit patterns. I, I can't say, mm-hmm. um, but people do tend to stay on. I always say, I, I think people should take these drugs at least a year, mm-hmm. right. Just to kind of see where they're at and give their bodies kind of one whole year of understanding mm-hmm. kind of this new balance, you know, losing weight in our world isn't as difficult as actually maintaining weight loss, mm-hmm. right? Because we right. don't want to do that ups and downs that people do when they kind of go on that um, like yo-yo dieting where you like gain 20, lose 30, gain 40, lose, you know, and that right. kind of up and down that we are trying to avoid. Yeah, and I think that's a theme that probably will apply to all of our discussions today, which is like the pro and con of relying on a medication and how do people think about that medication as how much it's helping versus mm-hmm. how much they're doing. I think that's really relevant because mm-hmm. 
there's like the biological components and then there's the psychological components mm-hmm. of well like I think there could be for many people fear about what happens when I get off yeah and I think some of it too is almost like it's bizarre because you know when we're thinking about losing weight like for some reason like we sh- in our mind we're always like we I should be able to fix this somehow mm-hmm. but if I were to say that you had any other sort of medical problem most people are like oh well I mean I have it I have to take this medicine for yeah, it an infection I need to take an antibiotic right or I have high blood pressure or my cholesterol is high like I just I'm just going to take these medicines yeah you know so in some ways kind of in the obesity medicine space we're trying to sort of get more of that mantra where it just, which is you know your brain has changed where it wants you to be a certain weight and you can definitely try and work on getting these different pieces in line, but sometimes you may not get quite to your goals without the assistance of some of these medications more on a longer term basis. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, and I'm not surprised that people think that because they're told like, get it together. (laughs) Like this is a problem you should be able to solve. And the it's not helpful or true. No. And I, I, you know, we spend a lot of time and even I think particularly where my heart aches for people is when we get into these like craving and, and the, the binging cycles that people get into and they're just so complex, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what's happening and what happened. And I always say, you know, there's so many things here that are outside of your control. Like, you know, even we can use Halloween candy as an example. I mean, the way that it's placed in stores and the way that it smells and the way that it's marketed and the colors and the looks and the way that it hits your tongue and the bite-sized pieces, like there's so much of that that's designed for you to eat it. And then everything in your life that's led you to that point to want said candy, like none of that is you choosing to do any of those choices. Right. And so I'm almost like, just give yourself a little bit of a break. If you can cut a little bit of that noise or that thread down just to allow your brain just a second to be like what's happening with this halloween candy Mm -hmm. that you know it's almost just like it's okay it's not as though you can't do something it's that the world is not set up for you to do it you know i know i always i reflect on that like every halloween because i healed my relationship with food i don't have that additional urge to binge based on not having the restriction pattern anymore but every year i eat more i eat way more candy than other times of the year because it's there. And, and right. I, don't, I don't shame myself for it. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't stress about it, but I'm always like, oh yeah, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like, yeah, you, and you kind of want people to adopt that mindset, but it's so quick to, I mean, I see that every day where people are like, but I should, I shouldn't feel right. this way. I, someone just recently was on a very restrictive eating pattern for a specific reason. And we know all the biology, like she knows it, I know it. And she's still like, why do I have an increased urge to eat? And it's like, of course you do. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You're in a very low calorie regimen. Yeah. And yeah, you chose it and it's, we know it's, it's going to prompt that. So it's so easy to fall into that shame spiral, which is yeah, totally not helpful. So, um, okay. So I think those are the main ones. So those are the main ones that were came up. So, and then right before the pandemic, I, this is just one that I think is really interesting just to throw out there. So everyone knows right before the pandemic, um, there was a drug, um, called plenty that sort of got published and was presented. And, um, what it is, is it's, um, a capsule that you take before your meals and it's natural ingredients. So it's cellulose, which is like what you'd get in celery and then citric acid, which is what you'd get in any sort of citrus fruit. And together, these two things create a gel that block up the absorption of 
stuff in your GI tract, okay. right? It's so like, again, we're doing almost like fake fiber, a little bit of fake fiber. Yeah. Yep. Cause okay. we talk, you know, a lot about how fiber is so important. It's yeah. basically fiber like a binds and you yeah. absorb yep. as much when you eat high fiber. Yep. Yeah. So it's basically like an enhancement of that. Interesting. You know, it's, um, the, the indications for it are a little bit different than the rest of the weight loss drugs. So, you know, the weight loss drugs, we talk about anyone who has a BMI of above 30 or 27 with some sort of comorbidity, meaning high blood sugars, high blood pressure, osteoarthritis, any of those things. Mm -hmm. This is actually lower. So it's just 27 flat out or 25 with a comorbidity. Mm. And I, and I don't there, you know, the, the studies lasted about, you know, six to 10 weeks. There wasn't, a way overwhelming amount of weight loss. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, it's not really helping our brain, right? So it's not really sort of assisting in that process. They didn't see any major side effects, you know, of people kind of, as you can imagine, like bloating and loser stools and kind of because you're mucking with your whole GI tract. Yeah. Just um, like when you increase your fiber. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know nothing else. You know we kind of worry about like small bowel obstructions or something else terrible that would happen with your with your tummy. They they didn't see any of that, so it could be an option for people who you know everything else may have failed may have not have worked. I I can't say that I write it too much. As I said, it's relatively new. I'm a little concerned about um, changing our microbiome, mm-hmm. just because I think our microbiome, which is the bacteria that live in our GI tract, are super important and. I don't know exactly what would happen if I took that long term. So um, I'm not saying that it's going to hurt it, but I just can't say that it won't. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, it could reduce people's desire to eat higher fiber and real food, which... So yeah, you know, has a disease prevention effect, right? Right. So positive impact on our microbiome. Right, and I. I think it's an interesting addition, and I think if... I did not know about this one. Yeah, it's kind of it's I'm interesting. I'm having my own reaction, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's... I don't know. I mean, it's just something that's out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I missed... I totally missed that one. It fell yeah. off my radar, so... Um, yeah, and so then in the past couple of years, right, you know... For a while, there's been basically this new class of medications called the GLP-1 agonist. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we've seen just kind of landmark um, changes in pa- patients' weights. Yeah, so, these are the ones that, why we are doing this. Yes, really, yeah. Because, so yeah. about 10 years ago or so, they made these medicines initially for diabetes. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm going to stop and just explain a little bit of what they are. Mm-hmm. So um, all of us normally, when we eat... From our small intestine, um, hormones leave the rest of our our small intestine to tell the rest of our body, right? Our brain, our fat cells, our liver, everywhere, that basically we have fuel here, right? Mm -hmm. We've eaten, we're absorbing fat and protein and carbohydrates, so brain, don't be so hungry. Liver, run our sugar processing a little more effectively. You know, fat cells don't store so much. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just basically telling the rest of our body what the hay is going on. Mm -hmm. These drugs mimic that hormone. Mm-hmm. So they're basically hitting on the receptors of that hormone on other parts of our body. Mm-hmm. And it was initially designed to lower patients' blood sugars who have diabetes. And so at lower doses, we were given these medications, but even at the lower doses, we were really seeing a lot of weight loss. Mm-hmm. And so then they went back and then they did the studies um, at even higher doses and they saw really impressive amounts of weight loss. So the first drugs that came out, um, one was called Sixenda. Um, and we saw about 10 to 15% weight loss on average, which sometimes can be higher. That's a once a day 
um, injection. Then about two or three years ago, we saw the drug Wagovi come out or semaglutide, and we saw again, really great weight loss results, 20 to 22% body weight on average, sometimes up to, oh man, I've seen people lose up to 30 to 40% of their body weight, Mm -hmm. depending on how much weight that they've needed to lose. And then most recently, um, a different company made a drug called Trizepatide or Mongerno, and this information was just presented um, at the obesity medicine conference and what they saw was upwards of like 25 percent on average and that's now at levels that we see with bariatric surgery so really for the first time we've gotten to a place where the medications are almost as equivalent as bariatric surgery Mm -hmm. which obviously for our medical space we find that quite impressive Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and um we're really excited so Currently now, trizepatide or Mogerno is only FDA approved for patients with diabetes. Mm-hmm. It will be, I almost can guarantee that it will be approved next year for, um, for patients who want to lose weight who don't have diabetes. And we're kind of just waiting to sort of see what happens and when it will be available and, you know, if this makes sense. Yeah. You know, and looking at the studies, what I find when I use it in practice, you know, when we first started looking at it, how it was sold was you lose weight and your blood sugars get better and all the other metabolic factors get better, right? Blood pressure, high lipids, all that jazz. But there's a really interesting piece to it. It really, and I'll describe it as patients describe it to me, it quiets the noise down for eating. Hmm. And so that constant kind of chatter for some people that's like, ooh, it's Friday, what am I gonna eat? Should I have Thai food? Should I have Chinese food? Should we have pizza? That constant Mm -hmm. chatter Mm -hmm. really quiets down. And so much so that some people come back to me and they're actually like, okay, we now have to lay out what I need to eat because it's never naturally not coming kind of back to me in a way that is helpful, right? And so let's talk about a really good way to get in just pure nutrients, basically. So it sounds like there might be some similarities because I've only seen a handful of people. That's interesting to hear. It does sound somewhat similar to what I've heard after bariatric surgery. They think that the same mechanisms of action is probably happening with Mm -hmm. bariatric surgery is that Mm -hmm. we're changing these different levels and almost enhancing some of the GIP-1 effects probably. Is that what, and that's what I like really want to dig in and understand the mechanism. They think, but they're probably not sure yet, right? I I, I think that that's just, it's just a similar process that probably with bariatric surgery, in addition to cranking down the calories, just because you're unable to eat drastic amounts of food from the the surgical changes of your food intake, I think we are getting some of these hormonal changes that are happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I think for instance, for bariatric surgery, like almost immediately people are like cured of their diabetes. Like it's even sleep apnea will go away. Yeah. Like there's some, that's the, I saw a really interesting talk years ago at, from a guy at U of M about surgery and, and just how sometimes there's this misconception about surgery that it's this restriction effect and how that's not really what we think is actually going on. Yeah, there's these separate pieces that are there. Yeah, it's really yeah. this like um, metabolic effect yeah. mostly. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so Trizepatide, in addition to being a GIP-1 agonist, it's also a GIP. So that's a glucose anotropic peptide. Okay. So this separate piece that's there is new to trizepatide. And one of the things that they saw, in addition to um, obviously weight loss results and, and all that, was that people were able to maintain their energy expenditure. So one of the fears with 
whey calorie restriction, bariatric surgery is that basically everyone's metabolism drops, meaning their body kind of freaks out from losing so much weight and their brain's like, oh, this seems terrible. Why don't we make sure that we just don't like expel so many calories when we're just sitting, for instance, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. we say that's an overall decline of our energy expenditure. And for some reason, with this addition of the GIP-1, we seem to be able to hold our energy expenditure, which is really exciting. And enough that it may, again, sort of push people to choosing this more often because it doesn't kind of matter what you do, whether it's extreme exercise or calorie restriction or bariatric surgery or some of these other drugs, we've never quite seen this. And of right. course, I mean, time will tell if that actually plays out more long-term for people. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, these studies were were over 72 weeks, which is pretty impressive. Wait, how many years? Is that three? No. How many years is that? <laughs> <laughs> so like over five years, six years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is always, I'm very unimpressed with anything like a year or less, just because like we, right. we need long-term. Well, we live in this space where like we see people longer than a year and we see the ups and downs. And so you're like, okay, this isn't as helpful. Yeah. Right. And we know that like that weight regain, even with like behavioral changes usually happens over one to five years sometimes it can be a while and it's like it can be exciting for people early on but it's so demoralizing as it yeah. gradually goes up and it's I would argue mostly biology although there's a psychological component I think as people seeing their weight go up and that's hard for people but anyways yeah. that's interesting yeah so that was the um that's trizepatide the so that one it has been studied that was one of my questions is like what do we know about yeah the length of these different meds yeah. and how long they've been studied well, I mean, in general, the class in general has been out for a while, right? Yeah, because have like been used in millions Victoza, and millions of people. Like, was the lower? That, yeah, well, so Victoza. Yeah, so Victoza, Zempic, Trulicity. I mean, these drugs have been used for, God, probably over ten years now. Okay. For diabetes, so it's not yeah. like these are brand spanking new. Yeah. You know, it's just we're just kind of almost tweak. I always say like we're just making them a little more elegant and tweaking them and, mm -hmm. um, and making these small additions to sort of get to where we need to be. Yeah. So um, I think that this is really exciting. Side effects because it interplays at our GI tract. You know, most of the patients I see have GI stuff. So it can be pretty significant, like nausea, vomiting, constipation are sort of the big boy thing. Some people can get really bad reflux. It's worse if you eat a really heavy meal. So if I were to take mm -hmm. this medicine and go have a burger and fries, I would feel really ill. But if mm -hmm. I had, you know, like a salad and a half of a burger, maybe not. Okay. You know. Okay. Um, some people struggle a little bit with their emotions which is mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, people talk about not wanting to drink alcohol anymore, and they're actually looking at maybe using this medication as part of maybe addiction models, anxiety, right, of these other places, because there really is this um, calming effect in the brain that they can't, I don't think we 100% understand. So yeah, and um, going back to the, so some people's mood improves, some people's mood doesn't. And I've had a couple of people feel a little bit more anxious on it. I had one lady stop it because of mood things. Um, that time will tell and we'll sort of play out to see what that sort of looks like in different play, in different spaces. Um, yeah. Do you have a sense of what might be going on there? I think it's the, I think it's a reward pathway. Cause I, I mean, if we think about what makes us feel content, it's sort of this balance of, right? Like serotonin and dopamine. And, um, if 
maybe we're in a, so I have two sort of theories. So one, it's if you're in that place where you're, maybe we're getting some dopamine reward from different foods and now you just don't have that call anymore, Yeah. right? So from either alcohol yeah, or sugar, right? Then we're kind of like, oh, like, and you're- con- How do I feel good? How do, I mean, your serotonin sort of not in, in the place that it needs to be quite yet, right? Maybe you just don't feel well. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's that piece. The other piece is I think that there is something probably hormonally related to a degree of fat loss. So mm-hmm. if you're losing upwards to 30% of your body weight, I mean, your, your fat cells are endocrine organs. Mm-hmm. So I, we just don't know exactly mm-hmm. what that means, right. Mm-hmm. And how you feel. And I, for some people, obviously if they gain a bunch of weight, we know that there's higher rate increases of depression. But if we lose a bunch of weight, I can't say that. And we've had that weight on for a while. I can't say that we wouldn't feel bad, you know, cause it's an, it's an interplayed in endocrine organ, particularly, I mean, our fat cells secrete estrogen. So for women's health, I mean, obviously that's a huge regulator of our mood and emotions. And if we're losing, you know, that degree of weight loss that may be interplayed here at this balance between kind of happiness and pleasure. Yeah, so, that's really interesting because there's some parallels to what we, what I've heard after surgery, which is like there can absolutely be mood changes and in positive or negative after surgery, but it's not uncommon for people to really miss that being able to get that reward value mm-hmm. from food. It's probably even more drastic after surgery because mm-hmm. after these meds, like you can definitely still go out and have your same food. You just might yeah. be eating a different portion and it may make you sicker depending on how you react to it. Yeah. Whereas surgery, they do have this drastic period. But yeah. And I don't know if it's the time too, because like surgery is like a day versus this, right. we titrate the, so we start at a low dose and then we titrate up over six months. Yeah. So I don't know if it's like you're moving away from your food slowly, like, you yeah, know, and time to yeah, just yeah. mentally kind of give your brain a, a sec to adjust it maybe. Right. But it so. could be that same eventual mechanism, which yeah. is like, oh, wow. This is, and some people have like shame about that, right? Or sometimes they're just like, no, I, I, I miss having that option of just like, I feel like I want to have this and I'm going to go get it and feel better. And yeah. that feels like we like autonomy and choice, right? And so we like to be able to regulate our mood and food can be an effective way to do that. To- totally. So, yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting. Um, uh, I was trying to think of some contraindications. It used to be pancreatitis, but we actually haven't seen any. That was initially in the um, diabetes studies. We saw pancreatitis with the GIP ones, but I've not seen any in my practice. And the study, the weight loss studies, they didn't see any pancreatitis, any okay. more increase in the placebo. So we've really not even thought about that as much anymore. Um, and then we talk about, there's a black box warning about thyroid cancer that they saw in some of the animal models, but honestly, that's not even a consideration or a thought that Mm. we really talk about in our space at all. Okay. Yeah. So you can't have it if you've had a history of a particular thyroid cancer called medullary thyroid cancer. But, um, other, other than that, there's really no major contraindications. Okay. So there's, is there any tie there that we know or they've seen? So in the animal models, they, um, they, some of the animals developed modular thyroid cancer okay. in the initial studies. Mm-hmm. Um, again, 10 years ago, when we were looking at this for diabetes, but in looking retrospectively about obviously from the millions and millions of people who have had these medicines, there's no increased risk of thyroid cancer at all. So it still okay. remains a black box warning, but it's not anything that I, sometimes I, you know, we, we really think about it all. People might ask about it if they People may ask. And I always try my best to warn everybody, you know, that they're going to get this black box warning about this medullary thyroid cancer, but it's not something particularly that 
in our space that we're overly concerned about. We're not really seeing it clinically play out in humans at all, but because it occurred in Correct. the animal, in the animal models, studies, yeah, you have to. We have a, to be cautious, correct. or we have to yep. at least be aware. Correct. Okay, yep. got it. Any other risks while we're talking about risks? We are going to talk about like long term in a second, which. But other risks of that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things I'm seeing as I'm using Mormon Journo is it's so good at controlling people's blood sugars that more so than we've ever seen before, that I'm actually seeing more hypoglycemia. And so I'm like now pulling almost all the other sugar medicines, even metformin, which I didn't think I'd ever do, mm-hmm. just because I'm concerned people are be their blood sugars will be dropping. Not only that, like I said, people just don't have the desire to eat as much. And so I think they're eating a little bit less and then they have on top of that, these other glucose lowering agents. So I've myself, I, I can't say this is a standard of care, but I I've been starting to pull all of them just because I'm don't want people to have their blood sugars go too low. Right. And like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there an a- age limit to using these meds? No, there really isn't, you know, um, particularly because in helping people lose weight, that seems to be beneficial even later in life. Okay. The, Maybe uh, you think of like falls, just blood sugar, right? Yeah. I, yes, totally. Um, honestly, the main barrier and why we don't use it more in patients above the age of 65 is Medicare has not picked this up in terms of coverage. So mm-hmm. I honestly just don't see it as frequently in patients above 65. Okay. That may change with some of these weight loss results. So um, we'll just sort of see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what about um, long-term? So we know they've been studied five or six years where people are still on them. Yep. And they've been losing weight and and maintaining. Yes. And what happens if they get off them? Usually we do see some weight regain. Mm -hmm. So this would be more of a longer term medication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're not really seeing like, I've had one rep years ago saying like it, it lowers your set point, but I haven't seen data to support that. Like, no, I can't, I can't say that that's really what we're seeing. And okay. I think, again, I can't say that if we quiet this noise down enough and you do a lot of these other, implement a lot of these other tools, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or even change a phase of life. Like, you know, both of us have little kids. And if we get to a point where, right, I'm not buying Halloween candy, then maybe I wouldn't see Halloween candy and need it. So I don't know if you move into a different phase of life, if that would change things and then maybe yeah. would go could change medications. It's so hard to say. Um, but in general, we think of these as more long-term. Yeah. It seems like maybe for people, um, the way I could see it being effective is like if not either you take it long-term or during the time you're taking it, you, you do other work. It like frees up, like you said, it quiets the mental noise. I think for some people too, cause I've worked with people doing kind of a intuitive eating non-diet approach and taking these meds. And I think, it's intuitive eating and like really trusting your body and figuring out what that looks like for you is a very hard journey for a lot of people. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's like very, there's a lot of emotional ups and downs. So it's, there's something I think for some people that feels a little bit like, I don't know if comforting's the word, but like they, many people, you know, weight loss is a goal and they always, when they come to see me and work on intuitive eating, sometimes they're like, this, is this allowed to be a goal? I'm like, it's all allowed. Yeah. (laughs) But, but I think just giving them a little bit of breathing room mm-hmm. of like, like you said, I didn't really think of it as mental noise, but just cause no one's described it like that, but allowing them to make some other shifts or not be so stressed about is my, cause with intuitive eating, I can't like autonomy means like I inform them your weight may stay the same. It may go up or it may go down. Like right. we actually do not know yeah. what will happen for your body. Yeah. 
and people don't love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, so that's one thing I think that for people that have chosen this, that can help them give a little bit of like peace of mind yeah. as we make some other important changes, whether that, and that could be like, I don't know, I learned to set boundaries at work or I learned to like right. take care of myself in this other way where I, I who knows, right? But yeah. I, it's, it's as I think the intuitive eating and behavioral therapies continue to expand, right. And people become more comfortable kind of learning and growing in that space. I, I think it's a good stepping stone. And I think we just honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. I also think too, like, I, I think of like, why am I not doing my like recommended cardio? And it's like, well, because I have little kids and like, yeah. that's just not my life. Right. And I'm okay with that. And, and that's, and I have to be Yeah. right. But maybe when my kids are teenagers, maybe I will go for a walk with my husband every day and do all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. if I'm in a position where I'm feeling so guilty and shameful, cause I just can't get over this mental, the mental noise of food and I just can't do it, then maybe that is an opportunity to take a medicine just to get me kind of through these different phases of life and then allow me some space to kind of grow Mm -hmm. and free myself a little bit of those guilt, shame spirals that happen. Like if we kind of make a bad choice and then, you know, that can just be so overwhelming and frustrating. Right. Yeah, exactly. And like a lot of people that I work with, they're like, they're doing all the things, but because of like this extreme stress of that life phase, whatever, yeah. it's like. Another really interesting period of time that I think is, op- will will open up over, over um, as we learn more about these drugs, is sort of with women in the perimenopausal space. Mm-hmm. So um, I see a lot of women that come in, you know, kind of starting in their early 40s, late 40s, and they're like, I've out of nowhere, I've gained weight and my blood sugars are up and I'm having all the symptoms that come with perimenopause, which is no energy. I'm having hot flashes and night sweats. My menstrual cycles are all over the place. And that correlates, we know, with definitely metabolic changes. And then as women go through menopause, they really enter this phase of increased cardiovascular risk, right? Where we see a rapid acceleration of vascular disease um, more so than we do with men. So, um, I think that time period may be really interesting to look at. And it may be, you know, if you're a woman who's having all these symptoms and gaining weight, like again, for this period of time, as you're going through this perimenopausal state, that may be another opportunity to use something like a GLP one to stabilize your blood sugars, to stabilize your weight, even a low dose, Right. And I don't think, and I think what we're finding, which is really interesting, is all these studies really escalate the doses. Um, clinically, we actually use sometimes low doses for people. Right. And sometimes that's just all people need. It's just mm-hmm. a little bit, right. Just to kind of keep them even keeled, get their blood sugars under better control. And that's all they need. And so I think that that perimenopausal time really will be really interesting to see kind of what happens. And maybe that will be something that would be an option for someone during that, that, uh, for women during that, um, phase of life transition. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess the other thing, so what do we know about costs? Like how often yeah. is this covered and what yeah. costs if they're not? Yeah. So the other drugs I spoke with, you know, they usually out of pocket, they run a couple hundred bucks max, mm-hmm. you know, um, insurers are sort of picking them up here and there, mm-hmm. which is somewhat exciting. Um, but even completely out of pocket, you can get deals and there's like um, specialty pharmacies that can, again, a couple hundred bucks, usually max hundred bucks, usually about is average. These drugs are expensive. Yeah, yeah they run about uh, anywhere from thirteen to eighteen hundred dollars a month. 
Um, right now there's some coupon codes and there will be coupon codes probably coming out for um, trazepatide when it gets FDA approved for weight loss. Mm-hmm. But um, it's really a missed opportunity, I think, for insurers because I think um, it would only be beneficial for people to get these things covered. And so my recommendation is if you're hearing that maybe one of these medicines would be something that you want, you need to look at your health insurance plan to see if um, you have obesity medicine coverage. Sometimes employers can actually opt out. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of kind of to get into the weeds about whether or not it's covered because it can be really a bummer to kind of decide that that's what you want to do and then not have any of it covered. Right, and I think that's like the one thing. There's a couple of like just things for people to consider and, and this is just like an individual. Everyone has to consider what's right for them, but they like if you're taking it and you're feeling good and like what's the getting off plan mm-hmm. if, if you decide yeah. you want to get off for whatever reason yeah um and what about if people want to have kids yeah so they're looking into that i i don't yeah. have any so topamax for sure we we don't do or acusimia we do right. not do with kids and a lot of the other weight loss drugs we typically pull right just yeah. because it we just don't know what right. it looks like during pregnancy yeah this one, because of the sugar balancing effects, I think we're trying to keep on just to see if it goes okay. I know that they're trying to look at it in pregnancy. They're studying all this stuff right now. I think mm-hmm. the next two to three years will really have a confirmed answer for everyone. I don't think there's any reason to suspect that it'd be bad from a kind of a biochemical standpoint. And again, even maybe helpful, if particularly if you're someone who's prone to having prediabetes or preeclampsia or some of these other um other metabolic things that may be putting actually your baby at risk. So I think we don't have any confirmed information now. And my guess would any obstetrician would probably recommend to stop it. But I think in the next two or three years, we'll probably have solid evidence about what what the right decision will be. Yeah. And, and I guess I went off a tangent there, but it's just this idea of like, if it doesn't become covered and it's not covered, knowing the cost and, and just having a plan for like mentally what you'll do if you have to if you choose to get off, like you plan to, or you have to, right? because yeah. I think that that's the downside that I see is just like, what's the plan? And it's not like, I just having people think about that. And for some people, I think that's been a deterrent that I've talked to. And I mm-hmm. think that's fair, but, but also for other people, it's not a deterrent and that's okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, my heart aches for people dealing with like insurance coverage because honestly that's usually the biggest reason why people have to stop is mm-hmm. because either they change insurance plans or the insurance stopped covering it or even this like little silly rule where like they'll be on it they'll lose a good amount of weight and then their bmi will be normal and then the insurance is like well now they don't need it and you're like are you guys insane like yeah, this is it right. we're really yeah. there's a lot of advocacy obesity medicine advocacy groups that are working really hard to like get this down in legislation to be like, you guys, like we really need to fix this, right? Cause yeah. this just doesn't make any sense. Right. So, but those are some of the things that people run into and they really do mentally kind of have to be ready for, this is a bit of a roller coaster ride cause mm-hmm. it can work and then you feel great then you don't get it and it can be really frustrating. Right, yes. Anything else you think people should know before we transition to um, our ending questions? Yeah, I mean, I think there, so, I mean, a lot of what we do in my office is, logistics, right? Preparing people for kind of the mental ups and downs and trying to find the right pharmacies. So um, if you make a decision that, you know, maybe one of these drugs is a good choice for you 
and maybe you talk to your BC, your primary care doctor and they're like, I have no idea or this doesn't work. I, I would suggest trying to find an obesity medicine specialist. Mm-hmm. You can go to um, the American Board of Obesity Medicine.org or the ABOM.org and find a provider in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be, I think, pr- probably a, a good fit, at least to kind of hear that you know, where you are in terms from an expert that like where you are in terms of a candidate for obesity medicine drugs. I think a lot of the primary care doctors are like myself, they're interested, they're curious, they're learning about these drugs. So I think more and more are learning, but just in case you had one that had really no idea, I definitely would seek out an obesity medicine specialist. Yeah. It's always nice to have. Yeah. Definitely a second opinion. Sounds good. Um, Okay. So. Oh, and I should plug oh, yeah. I, <laughs> plug myself because I'm <laughs> us doctors were like terrible at this. So if you live in the Grand Rapids area and you're a woman, I work at True Women's Health and we have a weight management. Um, we call it our True Weight Journey Program. Um, yeah, and you can come see us and we'll review all this stuff. And we, I think Sean and I both have um, it pulls at our heartstrings. We love behavioral stuff, so we talk so much about not having a diet. We really bring strongly in that that we you know we're here to provide you some guidance, but really it's on you and to try to heal your relationship with food. And so we believe in that too. So if you're in the Grand Rapids area, please check us out. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Do you want to, uh, so our final questions are just our motivation questions. Do you remember that these are on our list? No, I forgot, but we'll do them anyway. <laughs> so they're fun. What's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction of the behavior itself. Yeah. I like things to be run right. And I think that's why I got into the space because I, I like it seems as though as medicine, we should do this better, right? Like, better yeah. options, better choices. Let's do this better for people. So yes. fair enough. You're like, yeah. things to go to yeah. be right. I love it. And then the next one is what's um, an example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you maybe struggled to do consistently, um, but you figured out a way to kind of do it consistently, even if you don't always love it. So this is um, like a value-based choice, but maybe not, maybe you don't like love it per se. Mm. That's such a tough one. <laughs> I think pausing and spending time with my loved ones, I think mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. as part of being in your medical training, I don't say I don't love it, but it just f- does feel uncomfortable, right? Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to sacrifice so much and that's part of success. Yeah, you're supposed to drive and go. We were talking about this before we hit record. Yes, that you're supposed to keep Achieve. going. And, you know, I think one of the things, it's not that I don't love it, but I mean, like even at the end of the day with my kids, right? Like sometimes I'll purposely be like, my dishes are in the sink and they're going to stay there. And I'm going to go spend time with my kids now. We're yeah. going to go read and we're going to color and we're going to be a mom and kids. And even though that feels really uncomfortable, yeah. right? Like The to-do list can wait. The to-do list can wait. That's right. And I think that that's not been, I like I hate to admit this, but that's not something that's been natural for me, right? Mm-hmm. That like naturally I'm like a worker and and a, and a, a, scholar, you know, a scholar, medicine, whatever. And being a mother has been like really interesting. And so it's just finding that space. Yeah. 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 We have to sometimes learn, learn those things. Yeah. We've been programmed to associate doing with worth. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I think this is such a great conversation and maybe like next year we'll give an update about what's happening. We'll see where the world's at. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from a mom's podcast. Make something from a mom's podcast, please. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.